Hey, everybody. Another episode of the Crazy People Podcast. Our guest today, Theo Priestley, a futurist and social commentator from Scotland. What did you think, Maurice? I think it was fantastic, right? It's the... Um, it's about so much more than your Roomba, your Tesla, or uh, the, the spot running next to you. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, it's about... We touched on so many different topics that could be ecological, that could be political, that could be scientific, right? And then how all it, how it all comes together, the pitfalls of a lot of things that are going on, how to make it more accessible for the greater populace. And um, he is a super interesting guy. Oh, yeah. um, talks to all the big companies out there and uh, talks to them about what they need to do uh, to be future proof on what they need to think about. And uh, yeah, it was fun. It was fun. And the TV hour. and movie and book recommendations too along the way. <laughs> oh, yeah. We had those. those <laughs> A little too. bit we everything. Everything from yeah. uh, almost Disney to. Yeah, a bit more darker things. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, super, super interesting discussion. Yeah. What did you think about him? I thought really, um, I, I have followed Theo for a while and read read some of his stuff, not his book yet, but um, just he's he's really thought about these things. He's not just sort of a, a guy who's popular on social media or whatever. He's a guy who actually devotes a lot of thought, a lot of effort, a lot of time to, yeah. to thinking about these things. And we had, had some really good discussions about what might be dystopian about the future and what might be utopian about the future and how those things could, could maybe be alongside each other a little bit, uh, you know, and how to think about that. And just, man, what a discussion. Like I, like I said, as we were sort of off the, the air, like I could have this discussion every week. <laughs> it was a great, yeah, great discussion. And, and spoiler alert, you all need to take ownership of whatever the future will be, right? Yep. Uh, that is, I think, one of the great messages. If you want to hear the other ones and uh, want to learn about the dinner guests, right? The five dinner guests that we always do. Oh, what a dinner he has planned too. Yeah, you got to stick around for that. <laughs> you definitely need to uh, yeah, keep watching and have fun, okay? All right, here we go. Because really, what could go wrong once you press record, right? <laughs> exactly, what could go wrong? <laughs> it's all going to be very perfect. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Crazy People Doing a Podcast, the Crazy People Podcast. I am Russ Brummel over there on the other side of our lovely guest is Maurice Hoffman and sitting in the hot seat between us. He is a, a futurist and social commentator, Theo Priestley. Welcome, sir. Thanks for having me, Russ and Maurice. <laughs> First of all, thanks for being on the show. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, please tell us a little bit about your origin story before we go into all the cool futurist and, and so on. Um, well, blame me, I have a very different origin story to probably what people would imagine a futurist to have. So I started off um, imagining myself as a lawyer um, and wow. an architect way back in, um, you know, one or the other, uh, way back when I was at school. Um, but I was always fascinated in technology. And when I went to work for um, a bank, um, I managed to find my way into the IT center and started to uh, develop um, on the COBOL mainframes back then. So that just shows you how old I really am. Um, <laughs> <I'm yours. laughs> I certainly feel it now. Um, so, 
Yeah, so I mean, I got involved with uh, developer uh, development. Um, I got involved with running projects and things like that. And I found running projects to be deathly dull. So in my spare time, I would look at what the market was doing, who was talking about particular technologies, what kind of trends we're looking about. And I started to write about it myself. So I became a bit of a, a, a pseudo industry analyst, a one man band where I would do social commentary like Ross was saying, on on technology trends, on what the businesses were doing. Um, and it was almost like a, uh, if you guys know Gartner and Forrester, the big industry mm -hmm. analyst firms, um, I was almost like the antithesis of that. So uh, here's one guy with a very with a very loud voice coming from a backwater country in, in you know, in the UK, you know, Scotland, everyone, um, who I was relating all of these trends and everything I was reading to what was really happening on the ground floor. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of these people are like, um, you know, they they haven't practiced for a very long time. They read reports, they read surveys, and they make extrapolations. But of course, it's very different from when you're actually doing the do, and you find that pain points are completely different to what the, the, the you know, the execs say they are on a survey, whereas what you're actually finding out when you're running the projects. So I got a bit of uh, notoriety around my blog um, around that time. Um, and then I started doing um, the speaker circuit. So I started to talk about more and more about emerging technology trends. Um, and I wrote a book. Um, and that's kind of where it kind of came from. So I didn't grow up to be a futurist. I didn't want to be a futurist. Um, I didn't go to school or, or take any formal studies to be a futurist, which you can do because it's foresight studies. Um, I basically learned the trade as I went and as my career progressed and, you know, I'm, I have a cross-functional career, so I've done many different things and worn many hats, um, in my time, but all of the time I've always had one eye on what innovation is happening, what the future is looking like, extrapolating what that means for not only business, but society in general for people, um, and the technology itself. So what's going to happen in 10, 20, 30, 40 years time kind of thing. I want to be able to dream about, what the future looks like and how that translates to the ordinary people in the street, which I think we everybody forgets about. And then you have uh, before we dive into all of that, um, something that I that I read on your on your website about you is that you like to watch old movies and TV shows and and books and so on, and kind of look at what they imagined. What the future would be like, right? Mm -hmm. uh, specifically, I think in your in your bio it says something like um, looking at the at the stuff of the early twentieth century and the warfares and that. What are what fascinates you about looking at the predictions of yesteryear and looking at today and thinking about what came true and what didn't? Yeah, um, so I find that coming out of the so the two world wars, we had the world war, world war one, you came out of that. We had the economic depression or worldwide depression, um, and an instability. Then we entered the second world war. Then things started to pick up, but there was a lot of optimism. People wanted to, you know, people were fed up of, you know, of what had happened and they wanted to dream bigger and they wanted to look forward to the future. Um, so there was lots of hope. There was lots of optimism. The atomic age had just started. So of course, we were at a point in time then when we didn't actually understand what technology could do for real. Mm -hmm. So it was very unknown. We were able to think beyond the technology itself. And so it was like, well, we know there's this thing called the atom. 
don't exactly know what it does. You know, I mean, you had Isaac Asimov and his atomic ashtray, you know, things like that, <laughs> you know. So we don't really know what it does, but it's going to power everything. And of course, you had atomic powered cars, jetpacks, space. We're all going to be living on the moon, watching the Olympics by the year 2020 on the moon, all that kind of sort of thing. And it just felt unbridled, optimistic, fantastic. And there was no limit. So I look backwards to look at one, what happened to all that optimism? Why were we so optimistic? Um, how could we think about things that we that we were unafraid to express? That's the other thing as well. I think we were unafraid to express and be wrong about a lot of the future visions. Whereas now, if I put a, a thought out into the ether, You'll have a two thousand people come back going, "That's rubbish. That's wrong. That'll never happen." And it's like, "Well, does it matter? Why can't we all just like have a discussion about? Well, yeah, it's wrong, but wouldn't it be cool if it did this instead?" And then you and you generate a different set of discussions, and people are thinking and exploring ideas and stuff. So, you know, we need to start learning to dream a little bigger. And so I look yeah. back to capture that in a sense, and then find out why some of the things didn't happen and uh, then cry for them <laughs> <laughs> i mean uh, i mean the on on a popular and the the everyday scale right it's the star trek it's the mobile phone and a couple mm. of those things that everybody talks about but then um something that i that i like or that i actually find shocking is if you see that kind of content in children's movies do you know are you familiar with the movie wally Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I literally just spoke about that um, tonight on Twitter. I, I think that's the scariest movie or the most, yeah, it's one of the most scariest movies I've seen in a long time. From a simple perspective, if you if you look at how old that movie is and how it's all, de how it's all developing, has been developing since then, and what in that kind of vision what comes out of the human race being like a dumbed down piece mm. of meat sitting and being jetted around in this uh, in the spacecraft, not being able to walk anymore, right? And and yet it's a children's movie, right? And my son loves that thing, right? It's Wally, it's a cute computer, two 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 uh, robots falling in love, and uh, but to hide that um, criticism of uh, today's well now today's back then near future society. I find that most interesting. Are there other examples like that? And how do you how do you look at a movie like Wally? Wally is a great example because there are so many lessons in there. I mean, as a you know, the, the the Earth has suffered an ecological collapse, disaster, and and instead of trying to fix it, we decided to 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 fly off into space and live in space instead and become extremely lazy. Um, uh, and be at the whim of artificial intelligence who didn't actually want to return because if we returned, that meant that its mission was over and it would be deactivated. Exactly. So, you know, so there, so there was that. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the thing that I was talking about today um, on Twitter was the, the, the prescient nature of someone posted a chart about how many satellites are in orbit today. And and if you remember Wally, there was a bit where the Earth is literally surrounded by satellites, and the spaceship has to punch its way out to escape. Yeah. And and 
yeah, space is large and, and you know, there's lots of junk out there. But, you know, if we're to believe that SpaceX is going to put up 20,000 satellites, the Chinese want to put up another 30,000 or something like that. That's, you know, that's 50,000 50, extra satellites flying around doing whatever they're supposed to be doing. And of course, our, our systems are starting to creak at the seams in terms of trying to track these things in real mm -hmm. time from things about the size of a football to things about the size of a pin. Yeah. And they all can do the same amount of damage. So um, another interesting, um, not movie, but um, I think this, the, there's two programs on Apple TV which are wildly different, but very entertaining. One of them is called Hello Tomorrow. Um, and it depicts um, the 60s as if everything was, uh, everything came true about the World's Fair and we were all living with um, flying cars and, you know, the Jetsons. If the Jetsons are real, Hello yeah. Tomorrow is essentially that depiction. And it's really interesting seeing how they, they've they projected forward, you know, in a few years into the 60s. You know, people have got hovering briefcases. They've got the robots helping them out and stuff like that. Um, and then you've got For All Mankind, which is an interesting alternate future take which is what what would the space race have been like if the Americans and the Russians actually kept going at the same pace and didn't stop the space race, you know, back in the 70s and had that 20-year period where we didn't pretty much nothing. Um, so that's a really interesting extrapolation of what the future could have looked like, you know, bases on the moon, we had made it to Mars, etc. Um you know, I want to avoid all the tropes around, you know, things like Terminator, Scary Future and all that kind of sort of thing. Because, you know, it's been done to death. It's actually quite boring now when you think about it. It's a great movie, yeah. but it's boring to think about. Um, Robocop's a really interesting one because we're getting to that stage where, you know, we've got prosthetic limbs. We're starting to think about putting chips in our head. At some point, someone's going to try and do a brain transplant in the next 20 years, that kind of thing. You know, so, so could we see more robotics coming into play well sure i mean we've got startups galore now um coming out with um general purpose robots that look very humanoid and the, you know we'll start to see them you know they cost twenty thousand dollars or upwards so yeah. it's not going to be something that you just have sitting in the cupboard at your home but that's the starting point you know and you can see that start that you know just like space travel and the cost of space travel is starting to come down the more advanced that gets over the next 20 years the cost will start to come down so it won't just be a Roomba floating around in your in you know in the carpet you will actually have something else that's a little bit more helpful shall we say so um just trying to think what other movies I mean, there's a ton there's, <laughs> yeah there's a Tom Cruise one right where it's uh where this I, I can't remember the name and I haven't prepared that movie. It's a Tom Cruise one where he uses um computer Oh Minority Report. Minority, minority Report, Report. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well we're, we're getting there with um, obviously with Apple Vision Pro being released. Um, you know, everybody I don't know if you've seen the, the, the videos of people wandering about in the street or driving their car <laughs> yep. with a Vision Pro on. I think it's the worst thing imaginable, to be honest, to be outside. Um and it's not the future that I want to see because you know, um, we learned our lesson with Google Glass, you know, um, but because it's Apple and because it's shinier and and, and sexier and it costs three and a half thousand dollars, it seems to be more accessible, um, um, not accessible, acceptable. Mm -hmm. And yet it's got multiple cameras on the front. 
everybody seems to have forgotten that this thing is just literally a walking surveillance device in the in in different hands so um so yeah so you've got the so you've got the minority report kind of um augmented displays and things like that but i think what's what's really interesting with that is that although it's very cool on the screen um in the movies being able to multitask like that is not a human quality at all i mean no. humans are terrible at multitasking um you know i've got four monitors here one's turned off i've got three on the go just now but you, we have a limited abilities to be able to do all of this and yet the technology companies are essentially trying to say to us, oh, but if you do it spatially, you'll be able to manage this. You'll be able to have that window over there, that one over there. You'll have Spotify working in the background over there. You can watch your telly in that corner there. And it's like, no, it doesn't work like that. And you're actually going to, our productivity is actually going to go th through the floor, not through the roof. So, um, so I think, some depictions of the future are exciting or they feel exciting, but they're not very practical. Yeah, I agree. I agree. With all that, bringing all this together and bringing it back to what it is that you do, how do companies, and you work for uh, several big companies, SAP, um, I can remember, and, and other big companies out there, how do they kind of get in touch with you? What is their reasoning for getting in touch with you? And what is it that they are seeking from you? Yeah, I mean, a recent example was that I um, I was contacted by a large insurance company um, mm -hmm. and they had a, a, a European leadership summit where they gathered all the heads of their European um, arms and affiliates um, into a room and they basically do their sort of annual kickoff kind of strategy session and they wanted someone like me, um, a futurist to basically come in and paint the picture of what's the future of insurance, what's the insurance landscape going to look like in the next 10 to 20 years, taking into account emerging technologies and things like that. And you could talk about AI, VR, AR, blockchain, space, all that kind of sort of thing. Um, and of course, you have to relate that back to their business. So you can't just say, oh, yeah, everybody's going to, you know, your actuaries are going to be sitting on the moon doing calculations and <laughs> talking to an AI, blah, blah, blah. You have, to, you have to be realistic. And the pace of change sometimes isn't very quick in organizations of that scale. You basically show them and you, and you, you paint a picture of a day in the life of insurance with living with all of these kind of technologies and how will it improve their life? How can it make customer service better? How can you create new products with these technologies? What's the um, customer experience going to look like? What does the customer get out of it? That's what I'm kind of engaged for, is to essentially help these people understand, help um, the, the leadership sort of understand what it means to adopt these particular te types of technology now or in the future. What could it mean for their business, their organizational makeup? Will it affect employees in any way? How will it affect employees? How will it hit their customers or their clients? Will it improve them? Will it, you know, their, their experience? Will it make it worse? Um, you know, how do we, how do they future proof it? And they also want to understand, you know, what are the kind of black, you know, nobody can predict a black swan, but certainly you can say, well, what are the curveballs here that that might hit my business that I need to think about? Um, and I have to point out that the real role of a futurist is not to tell you what the force what the future is going to be, because no. there are many. 
no, no, no. I mean, we can tell, I could, I could tell you many types of futures. The idea is to prepare yourself and, and offer alternatives to what these futures are going to look like and if what the decisions that you need to take to get there and what the decisions that you need to take if you don't want that future, you know, to avoid it. It's not, yeah. you know, it's not for me to say that's the best future for you. It's up to you to make those judgments, but I can give you a whole range of futures um, and you prepare for them. That's it. It's all about preparation. For somebody doing it um, on, a, on a global stage, do you see mentality differences from one region to the other? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, for the most part, it's driven very much by sort of capitalist Western technological mentality. Really? Okay. Um, and that's that's the kind of flavor that I think the majority of forecasting and future studies has taken. Um, and again, it's driven by corporate need. You know, I want to know what my business is going to be doing, what KPI, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but one of the things I sort of talk about and I've written about before is like the, the idea of polyfuturism, which is, you know, there are many futures ahead of us, you know, so we need to understand what they can look like, whether they're probable, plausible, um, or otherwise, you know, but then we have to start thinking about, well, the world is made up of very, you know, many cultures, whether they're artificial or indigenous. Um, and so there are many societies and cultures in the UK in, in across the globe that you have to consider, well, what's their view of the future? What does it mean for their culture to be, you know, supplanted or implanted into a future scenario and how would they adapt? What do their cultures think about technology or society or space? I and mean, we've seen the native um, um, indigenous Americans, uh, native Americans basically saying, well, we don't want people going to the moon and, um, you know, messing around on the dark side of the moon because, uh, or sending ashes and remains like, what, there was a startup which sadly failed, you know, but they were sending uh, remains in, in canisters or, or cargo as cargo to land on the moon. And of course, that upset some indigenous uh, tribes because it's like, well, the moon is a sacred place to us and it's yeah. an ancestral place and you shouldn't be sending remain, you know, you know, human remains to a sacred place that belong, you know, that, that we treat as sacred. So we tend to ignore a lot of cultural um, influences when we think about the future and it's time to actually that we don't well yeah. you have you have some some other issues too right because it's, as as space becomes more of a of a everyday thing in in a future that goes that way um launching things near the equator becomes more and more cost effective and the idea of oh we can we can we can launch things from these guys who are allies who are now our territory who are now our property Right, you can, you can see that sort of neo-colonialism or something, if you will, where where people would say, "Hey, your your location on the Earth is something that we need to use to to build the future that we want to build," mm. um, which can get. I mean, you can it can get really dystopian, even from well, from the point of view of some people, even as other people go, "Well, this is a great future. Look at this. Look how wonderful this is." Right, so. Yeah, I mean, you know, I know some people who are trying to um, push for the UK to be a launch site for for sort of polar orbital mm -hmm. launches, and then you've got you know Australia, which is just you know ev everyone lives on the outskirts and obviously in the coastal side, and nobody lives in the middle because, well, frankly, you wouldn't want to because there's so many beasties who want to kill you. Um, but 
you know, so there's swathes and swathes of land there that could be used. But of course, you have an indigenous population in Australia, um, the Aborigines. And of course, they're, you know, their land, they were there first. Mm. And now you want to take that away from them to build space rockets to to launch and give the rest, of, you know, how do you balance that? You know, they've already had their land taken away from them once. Now you're going to say, well, actually, we're going to take more away from you because, you know, because it, it suits our purpose kind of thing. So, and then you've got like, like you say, the sort of equatorial side of things where it's like, well, do I need to chop down a rainforest to be able to get, build a launch site? That's obviously going to be, have to be next to some kind of seaport or whatever to be able to take things in and out. You have to think about all the transportation links that need to come with that kind of thing. So it's there's yeah, it, it's going to be very interesting. It's going to be very contentious. Not a simple job, <laughs> Mister Futurist. No, no, not at all. <laughs> and uh, what I find uh, find interesting, we all like the science fiction, and we all like the um, to read and 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 watch stuff about the future. But when it can, comes to actual technology and and innovation that is already here, mm -hmm. there seems to be a distrust in science, which is, in my mind, the, the basis for our future, right? At least when it comes to technology and so on. Um, that is that keeps up creeping, just creeps up more and more across the globe. It's not just a redneck American thing. It's I we have it over here in Germany. I'm pretty sure it's in, in the UK as well and in other in other countries. How does that fit? And what does the futurist as uh, as yourself what do you take away from that? I mean, we need science. I mean, science is what has got us this far. Let's put it this way. It gave us, you know, for, for better or for worse, it, it allowed us to harness the atom. It allowed us to, as as people say, you know, turn bricks into artificial intelligence or stone into artificial intelligence kind yeah. of thing. You know, um, it's created a, va you know, it created a vaccine for, for a pandemic, you know, Again, for good or worse, whatever conspiratorial theories that you believe in, etc. Um, you know, microchips and things like that. Well, I'm, I'm still waiting for Bill Gates to turn on the five G tower. <laughs> that's gonna, you know, either control me or, or give me constant euphoria. Um, you know, we need science um, as much as we need faith as well. You know, you know, we need we need both in equal measure. To be honest, we need something to believe in, but we also need the science to help us believe, dream bigger, and allow us to build those futures. So it kind of pains me when people sort of go, oh, well, 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 there's a backlash. I think there's, if I look at this in a, you know, in a different lens, I think there's a lot of chatter about science re more recently because of the climate um, uh, change issue, which is, you know, nobody can agree on one thing. Um, we have so many conflicting scientific views. It's how... 20 years ago, we were told we were going to all freeze to death. Now you're telling us global warming is actually going to bake us now. You know, make up your mind. This is just a weather pattern. Um, I saw this 10 years ago when I was a kid, blah, 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 blah. Um, and, and I think a lot of people expect science to come up with very hard um, answers when sometimes we don't know them. Um, I think science also suffers from a, a, a peer review problem. So um, it can, one, take a lot of time between writing a paper and getting it peer-reviewed and being accepted. And then you have 
sites like Arxiv and, and other ones that allow people to just publish blog posts as scientific articles. Um, and then they get cited. And of course, that starts off the misinformation train because suddenly you have a popular article rather than a scientific paper that's been cited by 100 people and has been circulated as fact or whatever. And, you know, and it gets out of control. So the whole thing with the people only read the headline, right? That's... Well, exactly. You know, the whole thing about the room temperature superconductor, for example, the most recent example there was, you know, published a paper said we, we'd finally cracked room temperature superconductivity. That was going to change the face of the planet. We were going to have artificial intelligence, you know, you know, with chips the size of our fingernails and all this kind of nonsense. Um, and of course, it hadn't been peer reviewed, hadn't been checked, hadn't been verified. But of course, it didn't stop people from rushing out going, I'm placing all my investment money in the next superconductor um, startup I find and and people claiming that, the you know, a new era of humanity and peace and solve world hunger, etc. Um, and it hadn't been proven. So, and then the immediate reaction is, oh, the bloody scientists got it wrong. And and so that's, uh, what, what do you say to that? It's like, we're so impatient for something when something comes along and it goes wrong or it's wrong or proven wrong. And it's like, well, the scientists, it was, it was their fault. They should have known better. They shouldn't have told us in the first place. So yeah. um, what can you do? You know, I, I, I think... I think science is in a rock and a hard place. Um, you know, same with humanities as well. Everybody's rushing towards AI and then nobody's, uh, you know, and everybody's forgetting about, you know, philosophy, psychology, you know, psychology, critical thinking, the arts, you know, all of that, sociology, all of that kind of stuff is being left behind yeah. in the wake of something because everybody's rushing towards a, a new shiny object. Whereas science and the, the the arts and the humanities are the things that are actually going to make us understand what to do with these technologies and these scientific breakthroughs and what it means to think about it and and as a species not as technologists not as silicon valley not as venture capitalists but as a species so we yeah. need science and we need the humanities yeah but you but you came out of that world right as you started thinking about it and writing about it, you came out of a world of let's deliver to this quarterly objective, whatever, let's mm. deliver this project. So how do you how do you kind of navigate that stream of, I want to think longer term. I want to think not next quarter or even year end or what. I, I want to think five years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years out. And I want to study and I want to, and I want to communicate these kind of things. In a world where we're increasingly thinking, like, I don't want to think beyond lunchtime today, <laughs> you know, whatever's on, whatever's on X this moment or Facebook mm. this moment is is the most important thing in the whole world, right? Or or on CNN or, or Fox News or whatever it might be. How do you, how do you sort of navigate through that personally? Like, how do you, how do you get there? It's not a, well, it's not an easy journey. Let's put it that way, because, you know, um, I, you know, I am beholden to to finding clients that mm -hmm. obviously pay and things like that. So it's not for everybody. Um, I think obviously when you're an exec, you're beholden to shareholders and you have to think about quarterly profits and quarterly results and hiring and firing and, and, and all that kind of sort of thing. So you get stuck in that mentality and pretty much, a, you know, a, a large majority of the working world, working class people think from paycheck to paycheck mm -hmm. as well. Um, and the only 
way out of that thinking is the distractions that we have around us, which is social media, reality TV, going to the movies, whatever, um, listening to a podcast or, or listening to a latest Taylor Swift album or something like that, or sport. And we find ourselves getting stuck in that cycle where the long-term thinking is actually being done by people with lots of money because they can shape what the future looks like to their own ends. And then you're basically, by the time you look up from your desk or you look up from, get up from your bed, you find that that world has changed and you're now part of that world and you had no say. Um, so when, when we, uh, I say we, me and Bronwyn Williams and other futurists, when we wrote the book, The Future Starts Now, the whole premise was to actually frame many different facets of technology, business and society. And we, we did it with uh, many different voices as well. So it wasn't just us writing about it. We actually had a lot of people contribute and have that kind of diverse um, range of voices um, and subjects. But the overall premise of the book was once you read this, you should be armed with enough knowledge to actually have an active stake in what you want the future to look like. So, you know, we touched on education, we touched on space, we touched on money, you know, we touched on AI, we touched on VR, you know, we covered political and technological and business-related stuff on purpose. So there was something for everybody, but it was enough of a rounded kind of futurism 101 kind of sort of, you know, dummy's guide to futurism kind of thing <laughs> to, be, you know, to basically give people a flavor to say, well, hey, you know, this future is actually quite exciting, but it's a bit hazardous as well. And how do I, how do I get involved? You know, what do I need to do? You know, I can either sit back and let it be done to me, just like a change program, you know, in whatever organization, or I can have a voice and I can say, well, actually, I don't particularly like the direction here. I want it to go this way. And so I must do something, uh, whether it's personal or whether it's political or whether it's as a group, to basically say, well, no, we we don't like this. We want it to do something else. Um, but I think I think it's important to remember that we, you know, we feel like individuals, but there's eight billion of us, mm. and you know, if eight billion people stand up against one billionaire who wants to do something that we don't like, you can guess who's going to win that argument. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What Absolutely. keeps you what keeps you up at night? Everything. it might sound corny, but I do think privacy is a is a bit of an issue now. I mean, we lost the right to it a long, long time ago. The, you know, the first time you picked up a, a flyer and you, you filled in a coupon, that was it. You gave away your address. First time you entered your email address in, in something, that was it. It's gone, it's out the door. Um, you know, we post every day on social media. So we are literally giving these platforms a free ride in terms of how we're feeling, what we're thinking, you know, our birthdays, who we're married to, who we're dating, who we're cheating on, you know, what we're doing in our business, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So privacy doesn't work anymore the way it should. Um, and of course, all of that in terms of like artificial intelligence is, you know, we all expected AI to just crop up and it would know everything. Now the, the reality is, is that AI needs all of human creation to make it function properly. And of course, mm -hmm. 
and you know, and as we've seen, you know, the the for profit models of AI is like, well, we can't make AI unless we steal everything, because how are we supposed to make money? And it's like, how are we how are we okay with this? You know, yeah. as a society, how are we okay with essentially saying, well, the arts and humanity and 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 the humanities and everything else like that, they're actually valueless because we can give them away as long as it creates um, an artificial intelligence that's going to tell us what we already know when we ask it a question. Um, so there, there's many things that sort of keep me up at night. Um, uh, cats keep me up at night, but that's because I've got three. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that, that worries me is that the everyday person gets left behind in all of this, right? I mean, mm -hmm. if you if you look at what's going on with AI and AI is the popular hmm. bad guy, right? The, well, what should you call it? Black Swan right now that uh, is easy to be used to scare everybody off, but it's really technology. And uh, what I worry about and having a son that is eight years old is how can you make sure that you're not getting get, being left behind like people who weren't able to read back in Martin Luther days, right? Mm. It was the people that were able to read and people that couldn't. And only those that were able to read were able to uh, access knowledge that was written down. And it's the same now with, with coding, right? It's mm. um, understanding what's going on in this PC technology AI type world and how that all works versus those people who don't, right? It's the Wally thing all over again, right? Yeah. Um, that's what, what worries me. Uh, what is your perspective on that? How yeah, I, mean, I think that I think there's always going to be people left behind. I mean, if you look at even the um, when the web came out and you had so you know, people called silver surfers who were the older generation who were actively going out of their way to find out how did this internet thing work? Go to the local library, you know, play around on a computer. What does a browser do? That kind of sort of thing. So, you know, you have to understand what the impact of these technologies is on the re on the real people on the ground. Um, and then, you know, which of those people are going to be innately curious to so to 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 want to learn about it, and which ones are quite happy who will never touch it because their life will never need it. You know, they'll never see a need for it. Um, you know, I've got, I, I know people who are about the same age as me, slightly older. You know, some of them are, some of them have Alexa in their home and they're shouting at it to do particular things. Um, others are still trying to figure out text messages, old fa you know, old-fashioned SMS. You know, and it's like, you know, technology can help some people and they can run with it. You know, I'm I'm 52 this year. I've been running with technology because I've been innately curious, um, or overtly curious in in a sense, and I wanted to learn. And then there've been others who are passive observers, and it's like, well, it looks cool, but I'm never going to need it, so I'm not going to bother with it. I'm not going to engage. I don't need it. So you know, you can't drag everybody, unfortunately. Um, and on the flip side of that, you know, I was actually talking before this call. Uh, to someone about who's wanting to do something with education in the United States. Um, and I think a lot of it to do is is, is accessibility as exactly. well. So how do we make these new technologies as accessible as possible to people from every background? 
if this is supposed to have such a material impact on society, you know, why are we putting up pay paywall barriers behind it? You know, why are we limiting it to people who have the most expensive up-to-date phones, forcing people to get into debt to buy a new phone, the latest phone, or, or on a high tariff? Um, or why do we need why do we need them to have the latest laptop or something like that? If this is supposed to benefit, you know, the, the old excuse is supposed to benefit all of humanity. Well, if it's supposed to benefit all of humanity, then it should be accessible to everybody, no matter what they have. Yeah. And of course, from a technological standpoint, technology is always a divisive. It's always going to be about class, who has and who hasn't. Um, it's, you know, so um, until we can get that around our head, then, you know, th there's always going to be people left behind. Yeah. Well, then, and it's, it's not always, I think, not always mutually exclusive, right? Um, so the, the, county where I live uh, decided last year to invest some number of millions of dollars to pay a big company to to run uh, fiber optic to every home in the county. Mm. Not a super populated, <laughs> high population county, um, but they said there's, there's two reasons. One is we've tried remote education. Uh, the school district here wants to offer it as, a, as an option maybe sometime in the future. We, we need high speed access for kids to get education. And at the same time, we're the next county over from a, a major metropolitan area in Louisville, Kentucky, um, and people want high-speed access. And so having high-speed access to every home in the county, at least available if it's not turned on, um, increases property values. Mm -hmm. And people, you know, people like their their home being worth more and stuff too. So um, you can you can end up in a future where you're thinking about meeting everybody's needs and also people are benefiting from it. Mm. But it seems to be pretty rare. It seems to be that we want to, as a people, kind of either pick one or the other and, and mm -hmm. grab onto them and say, this is this is why we do it, right? Um, and instead of both. So how do you, Theo, how do you, as you're, as you're looking at that, right? As you come to it from your big history um, of thinking about it, and you and I are almost the same age, right? Where we are in life and saying, okay, we maybe... If if the AI and the robotic surgery doesn't catch up fast enough, maybe we have more years behind than ahead. Maybe, <laughs> maybe medical science will catch up to it. And we'll be okay. Um, so how do you how do you help people balance that? How do you balance it for yourself to to try to try to pick the right future, the best future, the most I don't know equitable future, something I don't know what it is. Because uh, you said you you help people see multiple futures, but how do you how do you sort of help them think about which one do I want to aim toward? And yeah, why? I mean, yeah. So, I mean, you have to, you have to be fairly blunt about um, which ones. Oh, in your opinion, obviously, which ones are positive and which ones are negative. Hmm. I think a lot of a lot of the time we don't want to spread too much negativity. Or, actually, how do we think about this? Most visions of the future are tend to be dystopian because mm -hmm. we like the conflict and we like to be able to think, oh, that's terrible. Um, and that's great because it's like right okay well we know not to build that and then it's, you know on the flip on the flip side of that coin there's lots of people who go that's a great thing i would love to build that and you're like no this was a warning <laughs> it wasn't a, an instruction manual terminator robots are yeah. so cool <laughs> um i think and the other on the other side of that is that you get to sort of utopian type positive futures and everybody goes well that's too happy that's never going to happen um and you have to help people navigate towards those positive futures. 
um, whether it's in their personal life or whether it's in education or whether it's in business or whether it's in politics or whatever, you have to show um, the impact, both short-term and long-term, of what those futures could look like. It's not enough to show someone, well, this is what the future could look like and this is what a good future looks like and this is what a bad future looks like. It's almost like, well, that's 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 the future there. What happens if we keep going on that path, right? And at what point all along that road is it too late to ever get back to a positive future, you know, from that road? Um, and again, it all goes down to sort of agency and understanding how much agency you actually have. Mm -hmm. um, I, I haven't actually thought about it too much from my own personal perspective because I've always been thinking like this, even when I was a boy, I would always admire, you know, um, I always had a, a comic book or a, a, a science fiction novel in my hand and I was always reading it and finding it fascinating how people could um, dream up something like this and where did they get their ideas from and what would happen if this became reality and stuff. And then as, as, as I've got older and I look at the technology landscape, I actually find the, not the dystopian side, accelerating, but I think the 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 technology side has become dictatorial to what to society um and i think that's the wrong way around we are we are allowing the technology to shape society which it would do anyway but the thing is is that technology would shape itself around the tech yeah the society would shape itself around the technology for positive benefit whereas we're quite happily being with technology in the driving seat and we're in the passenger seat and going along for the ride. And we need to stop that. We need to stop the technology and the technocrats, again, dictating to us what our future looks like and why we should fit into that future because they're putting technology front and centre rather than the human front and centre. And it's all about the species at the end of the day. You know, if we want to survive... The, the climate cataclysm, for example, because the planet, I mean, let's put it out there right now, the planet is going to be fine, whatever happens. It has survived giant rocks from space and wiped out the dinosaurs that lived for, you know, hundreds of millions of years, and we've not even had a blink of an eye yet. Um, and we're already claiming that the planet is going to be destroyed. It's not. Civilization and our way of life as we know it will be altered irrevocably. Um, if we don't alter our own ways. Yeah. Um, and part of that is understanding that it's civilization on the edge, not the planet. And then why are we letting technology distract us from a lot of these pressing matters as well? Yeah, the, the funny thing is, I, I read it somewhere, is why are we so eager to go to Mars? Shouldn't we take care of the planet? It'll be all right now. <laughs> so we don't need to go to Mars, right? Um. What is the, to end on a positive note, what is the one thing that excites you the most right now? Getting to Mars. <laughs> <laughs> actually, um, one thing that sort of excites me, actually, um, do you know what? I've, I've, I've been watching For All Mankind, and mm -hmm. and I do think that that is a, a fantastic piece of writing in terms of alternate futures. Um, and seeing how we struggled and, and obviously, you know, the old Cold War space race and things like that. You know, the first season is great because, you know, they get to the, the finally get to the moon. You have a moon base. You see, how, you know, the the, the 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 harsh realities of the space race, I think. Everybody finds it 
incredibly sexy, but the fact is it's just another day job and it's very boring and you have, you know, you have to mine things, you have to do administration, you have to fill paperwork, you know, you have to survive, etc. Um, but the idea of, and I, and I do prescribe to or subscribe to um, Jeff Bezos's way of thinking, which is we need to move heavy industry and manufacturing off Earth and put it into space and put it on the moon um, and preserve, start to treat the Earth as a, pres you know, a preservation. Um, and, and, you know, this is our home. We shouldn't be strip mining it left, right and centre. And I would like to get to those kind of sort of sustainable futures where we're using alternate energy sources other than oil. Um, we're starting to mine for for resources on the moon and the asteroid belt and things like that, building things in space so we don't have to think about it on Earth. I think the other thing as well, a lot of people miss out on that, on, on this kind of sort of future, is that a lot of the technological advances and things that have improved our life on the ground have come from advances in space by understanding how things work in space by having to build things for the astronauts to make them work you know um and you know the space shuttle and the saturn v rocket and everything else and, and how they work and you know i'm pretty sure mris came from you know the mri machine that we take for granted in hospitals came from the space race and and the technological advances that you know made it happen as part of that and if we can keep up that momentum in terms of well we're pushing out for space not for conflict not for ownership of particular resources but to build um you know for civilization for the future and also to bring back those advancements to make everybody who wants to stay here you know as healthy and as prosperous uh, as possible, then that's a future worth aiming for. Um, but it's not a Star Trek future because unfortunately the Star Trek future relied heavily on the replicator um, and, and making things out of nothing. And then obviously being able to give it to everybody. And the way we're heading is more like Elysium, if you've seen that movie, than it is about Star Trek, which is kind of sad. But No, I haven't seen it. Oh, that's a great Matt Damon movie, Elysium. Um, it's by the same director, Neil Bloomkamp, who did um, District Nine. Have you seen that one? Yeah. yeah, yeah. But Elysium is a you know it's a very you know it's a dystopian thing, but you can absolutely see because they have the orbiting um, space station and it's filled with very rich and the elite and the powerful. And Earth is essentially a slum, a bit like Cape Town and Johannesburg, because I think that's that's Neil's background. Um, and the rich have access to this fabulous healthcare machine that basically scans you, reconstitutes your body and gets rid of cancers and everything else. And the poor have nothing. And and it's that kind of, you know, one, you know, technology should be for everybody, not just for the for one set. We have to get out of that mentality, I think. You know, everything that we do from this point on should be for the benefit of everybody else. You know, yeah. so if if we're to believe the altruistic intents of AI, for example, all these companies building AI, it shouldn't be a profit model. Yes, we understand that shareholders need their money and things like that, but at the same time, 
8 billion people can be shareholders of a, of a technology that's supposed to provide infinite amounts of value for everybody. But so far, it's locked behind a paywall and it's only providing lots of value for Microsoft and other shareholders, for example. So we have to, there's, there's lots of things that need to happen before we ever get to those equitable futures. But I would like to see it one day. Fantastic. Hey, Theo, it was an absolute pleasure having you on this show. And uh, I'm pretty sure we could continue this for another hour or two <laughs> without, a, without a problem. Here's our, our final question. Um, five dinner guests, guests, dead or alive, who would you invite? Oh, five dinner guests, dead or alive. Oh, my God. Anyone. Can I choose Bruce Wayne? <laughs> yes, he's kind of he's kind of not alive or dead, but often I guess. Yeah, there you go. Um okay, Bruce Wayne, um George Michael, because and Freddie or Freddie Mercury, because I just thought they were absolute phenomenal talents. Yeah. Um uh Mary Shelley, because she wrote the first um science uh, regarded as the first science fiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Amelia Earhart, because I want to know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I want to know happened, what happened. Yeah. What happened? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think you got one more. Uh, and maybe either Einstein or Stephen Hawking, because I think it would be uh, Stephen Hawking. Let's say, because I think just getting to pick that brain, it would be such a privilege. I think. Um. Yeah, you have a have had a good sense of humor, right? I mean, his yeah, yeah, his participation in Big Bang Theory series and all that, right? That was it to be quite okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I, I can see a lot of people when they when they answer these questions, go, oh, I would like to see uh, Bezos or uh, Musk or Satya Nadella or you know some kind of business leader and, and stuff like that. But I actually find that I, I just want to surround, be surrounded in this dinner, in this theoretical dinner party with like real kind of personalities from very different walks of life yeah um and and people who have done really exciting or strange things um and had interesting you know childhoods and back you know yeah sign me up for that dinner party great music great <laughs> stories interesting yeah. conversation that's like a all night dinner party in the background listening <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> i'll serve the hors d'oeuvres or something anything <laughs> whatever it takes you. Thank you so much for, for taking the time. Yeah. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks, Leo. All, All right. right. Take care. All right. Take it easy. Bye-bye.